Grab your Bibles, everybody, and turn with me to John chapter 18. And for the next few weeks, I get to do something kind of fun in that the Lord has given me a series of messages, and instead of just doing one at a time here and there, He's actually given me a series of thought. And uh, so the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking to you uh, along these lines, Christ versus culture. Christ versus culture. And so I'm going to be talking about our culture, and I'm going to talk about what Jesus said. I want to call the message, uh, or the series, That's What He Said. Um, because I'm just going to use, <laughs> I'm just going to use the words of Jesus. I'm just going to use the words of Jesus to talk to the issues of culture. Now, my audience is Christian believers, and specifically Christian believers in Pathway. You know, and we do have unbelievers that come to our church. We have people who are saved in our church. Uh, we've had a couple hundred people saved this year in Pathway, and we thank God for that. We've had, you know, 50 people or so baptized this year. We thank God for that. Those are wonderful things. Um, but I know predominantly I'm talking to believers or people exploring faith. But I want to talk to these issues because I've realized now things that I used to think were just given theological concepts that everyone knew we would call it doctrine. Now I'm finding out in the body of Christ, and, and, and you know this too, there's gray areas everywhere that according to Scripture there are not gray areas. And, uh, and so I want to talk about it. In fact... Um, I, where part of this came from, I read a survey. It's uh, League and Air Ministries publishes it every two years. It's a biannual survey, and they call it the State of Theology in America. It's the survey. So it's a, re, it's a respected survey, respected ministry. But I, I won't tell you, they survey people who are outside of the church, and then they survey people who claim to be evangelical Christians, which is what we would say we are, right? We're evangelical Christians, Okay. And so I, I just looked through there and I picked a few things out that stood out to me. But number one, it, it said, you know, according to this survey, 56% of evangelical Christians believe God accepts worship from all religions. Did you hear what I said? Because if you're sitting here like, what's wrong with that? Well, we're going to talk about it. Um, God does not accept the worship of Muslims because they are not worshiping him. There is not one universal God that every religion points to. Okay, I can't, talk, I can't teach my I should just teach this. This should be my outline. Uh, 43% of evangelical Christians say Jesus was a great teacher, but probably not God. 43%. 26% of evangelical Christians says the Bible is helpful, but it's not actually true. 38% of evangelical Christians says religious beliefs is a matter of personal opinion, and it's not objective truth. 37% of evangelical Christians said gender identity is a matter of choice. So when I read those, I realized we don't need to preach the gospel to those outside of the church. <laughs> We need to get the Christians saved. Right? And so we're in John 18. Grab your Bible and stand with me. We love to read for standing God for, for we love to stand for the reading of God's word because God's word is truth. It's the authority of God, right? And uh, and God breathed it. It's not just a, a a book, 
you know, but it's the book, right? It's the book of books. So John chapter 18, uh, verse 33 is where we're going to start. Now, I love John's gospel, and y'all know this. John's gospel is the fourth gospel. Most people, I don't know, if you're, you know, with, that, with the dating of all the gospels, there's always, they're trying to date them. You have to remember when the gospels are written, they were thinking Jesus was coming back very quickly. They were basically taking the oral traditions and the sermons preached and all those things and just trying to put them to tell the story of Jesus. And back then, biographies were not a big thing in, you know, first century Christianity. And so they weren't thinking, you know, Jesus Christ born this day at this place. I mean, we have some of those things. You know, we have the parents, but they didn't say, you know, he's 13, he got a dog. You know, they didn't do biography like we do biography nowadays. So in dating, like even in the biographies that are written, sometimes they don't say who wrote them, and sometimes they don't say what day. Now, John's biography is pretty cool because we have Papyrus 54 or 45, P55, P just means papyrus. It's the first discover. It's the the earliest piece of a manuscript of John. In fact, it's John chapter 18. Is the verses we're about to read, uh, and that was discovered. They you know that date they dated it somewhere to where that copy would be back at you know second century one one twenty five to one seventy five. Right in there is the best they can do. So it's one of the earliest manuscripts that we have, or it is the earliest manuscript we have of John, and one of the earliest we have of the New Testament or the of the Gospels. And, um, and so, um, anyway, so it would be nice if they put some information in there that we want them to put in there, but, um, they don't. So when people say who wrote John, I subscribe to the theory that the apostle John, who was leaning on Jesus breath of the last breath of the last supper is the one who wrote it. There is a theory that it could have been the elder John, who was one of the 70, who was a Judean believer and follower of Jesus. Um, but you have to look inside the Bible and outside the Bible, all that to say, John is the fourth gospel. It was written the latest, and they date these, uh, liberal, dated, date, liberal dates put it around 90 to 95, um, because John died in Ephesus in 98. Um, but I, I honestly want to say this, there's no reason that I have been able to find that any of the gospels could not have been written, or that all the gospels could have actually been written prior to 70 A.D., because there's nothing in them that actually dates them past that that I've been able to find. In fact, in John's gospel, I think it's the fifth chapter, he gives a location of a gate called the Sheep Gate. And basically he says he gives it in proximity to the temple. Now why is that important? Because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So typically, if you're giving instructions and you're saying, hey, go down there to where the barn used to be if it's not there anymore, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, by the temple. And so that, that's just one of the clues that tells us if John's gospel was prior to A.D. 70, then they all were because his was definitely the last one written anyways. But John is concerned about theology. Um, it's cool. John gives us some long discourses. Uh, he doesn't do the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plains, those type of things. But he gives us, we have the, the Last Supper, which is the farewell discourse. Um, it's kind of cool because there's sevens in John, seven I am statements, seven discourses, seven signs. Um, and so anyway, so John is giving us some looks at the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. So Jesus has been arrested. So this is where we're going, John 18. Jesus has been arrested. Um, he, he is, he, I, most people don't know this, he went through six trials. So there were 
Uh, he had to be, first he stood before Ananias, who was, so Ananias probably was the Jewish high priest that they respected. Caiaphas was probably the appointed high priest by the Roman officials or the Roman government. So they, they take him to Ananias. He said, yes, we can try him. They take him to Caiaphas. Legally, he's going to try him. They take him to the Sanhedrin. Yes, he has to be put to death. The problem is Christians, are, I'm sorry, not Christians. They were not Christians. Uh, Jews did not have the right to execute anyone. Only Rome did because they were under Jewish or under Roman rule. So they have to get Rome to go along with it. So after Sanhedrin, which is kind of the governing body of the Jews, convicts Jesus, they, they've got to come up with a charge that Rome will accept. So that is why they wanted to say he said he's a king. That's, that's the whole charge against Jesus because Rome doesn't care if he's a crazy Jewish sage, in their opinion. They only care if he's trying to take something over, right? Like the Maccabees or whoever. All right, and so um, and so that's why it's, it's you know it's stupid charges they bring him up on, and that's how he gets to Pilate. And Pilate talks to him, finds nothing wrong with him, sends him to Herod, finds nothing wrong with him, sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate is like, hey, there's still nothing wrong with this guy, right? But they get him, they get Jesus crucified by saying he's a king. Jesus could have this is why Pilate gets frustrated. All Jesus had to do is say, man, they're crazy. I'm not a king. I'm just an evangelist or something like that. And Pilate been like, yeah, no problem. We're going see that in this interview. Um, but Jesus has to be crucified. So as Isaiah says, he opened not his mouth. He, he doesn't answer Pilate and it gets very frustrating. And Pilate wants to let him go. And then the Jews call him out by saying, you're no friend of Caesar if you let him go. The reason was there's some tension between Pilate. Pilate was in, in power in Jerusalem from 26 AD to 36 AD. And um, Pilate was kind of an antagonist and and he was not nice with the Jews. One time he brought all these uh, busts of the emperor into the city. And of course, the Jews know graven images, right? And so he has them placed all just to make them mad. And they show up where he's at in Caesarea, and it turns into a three-day standoff then or five-day standoff. Pilate's finally like, I'm just going to kill you all, right? And they're like, you, you can't kill us. And so he kind of relents because he didn't want to get in trouble with Caesar. And there's another time he put shields you know, in the in the I think in Herod's palace, I think it's where it was, or the, uh, the Herodian, whatever. Anyways, put some shields in there, and that makes them mad, and they appeal to Caesar. I mean, there's all this stuff that goes on, and so when they call him out and say, "Then you're no friend of Caesar," he knew, I, okay, this is already a strained thing, me and the Jews and Caesar, and so okay, I'm just gonna kill him. Then if that's what y'all want, then y'all can have Barabbas, and I'll kill him. All right, does everybody understand all the history now? All right. John 18, 30. I just think it's good to understand what's actually going on. You know, so John 30, 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? This is so Jesus, right? Y'all, I mean, this is like so Miyagi-san. Anyways, this is like, so do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, he's like, Am I a Jew? In other words, I don't care. Look, I'm not a Jew. Stop your mind games. And so he said, your nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, see, this is where Jesus could have just said nothing. He said, I haven't done anything, man. I was just out in the garden praying, and they came and arrested me. You know, I mean, he could have said that. But see, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not of this world. Now, see, this is an interesting thing because Jesus is not saying he's not a king. He's saying he is a king. He's just saying my kingdom doesn't come from this world, right? But when he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would come fight. 
He's saying, but it's not of this world, so no one's coming to fight. And this is why Pilate's like, then I don't care. As far as Pilate's concerned, he's you know, a religious sage, and he doesn't care anything about him. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus answered. Now, the synoptic gospels show us this. But Jesus said pretty much, you said it. Like, he still won't say yes or no. He's just like, as you say. That's what you say, you know. But then Jesus says this. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time, this moment in your presence. Holy Spirit, speak to us today as we explore Pilate's question. What is truth? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What is truth? It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because this is pre-modern, so we live in a post-modern culture, a post-modern society, um, which means postmodern is relativism. Most of you have encountered this, right? Everybody has their own truth. And that's exactly, it's pre-modern, because this is Pilate, this is first century. But what Pilate's saying in that culture is, you know what the truth was? The truth came down to whose ever sword was the greatest. Meaning the most powerful that's, that's the truth. Are you with me? That's why when he's interviewing Jesus, he's like, so you're a king? And Jesus is like, you say I'm a king. That's what the synoptics record. So you said it. But then Jesus said, but my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, you know, people would come fight for me or whatever. And so Pilate's trying to figure this out. Like, why aren't you talking to me? And Jesus said, but this is the reason I came into this world, to bear witness of the truth. To bear witness of the truth. And then Pilate cynically, rhetorically, retorts, what's truth? Because to him, the Greeks had truth, right? Because we live in, I mean, they're in a melting pot of culture, right? Amalgamation of all these different cultural ideas and religions and philosophies. I mean, you got Greek philosophers and you got Greek mythology and then you got Rome and their history and then you got the Jews and all that is kind of because you got the Greco Roman world and all that's collided with the Jews and now they're in Jerusalem. And so Pilate's like, whose truth? Basically, if you say it this way, what is truth? Are you talking about your truth? Are you talking about the Greek truth? Are you talking about the Roman truth? Talking about the Jew truth? Like, which, which which truth? Because the only truth I understand is whoever has the biggest sword. Whoever has the strongest sword, the most military. In other words, who's ever in power, that's the truth. Now, I want you to think about that because that's exactly what's going on in America. It's exactly what's going on in America. We have an influx of relative truth driven by the agendas of the left. And the more, the more that agenda gains power, the more that truth becomes prevalent. I never thought I would live in a day where someone would tell me being a Christ follower is a mental illness. In the same breath that they told me a man who thinks he's a teenage girl is his right. I'm like, no, that would be the mental illness. Having faith has never been a mental illness. 
But believing you're a different gender and a different age and even sometimes a different ethnicity than what you actually are, when the mind and the body don't match, how many know what we've always believed and what is true? The mind is wrong, not the body. So we work on the mind. We don't re-identify. But we live in a world where everybody's like, what is truth? And what? So here's my question. Does truth even matter anymore? Well, let's go to the words of Jesus and see what Jesus says about truth. And the first thing Jesus says about truth is truth is consequential. He said truth matters. I mean, this is essentially what he just said. For this purpose, I was born and I have come into this world. So this is my mission. It's what he's saying. Here's my mission. And my mission is truth. Because truth matters. That's what he's implying. And by the way, he's implying when he says, I've come into the world for the truth, he's implying there is one truth. And that is the truth you need to know. And that is the truth that matters. So Jesus says, truth matters. It's consequential. Do you, do you believe truth is consequential? I don't know. Let me, let me ask you a question. If, if let's just say, I, I came, when you came in today, I had to tell you, hey guys, I got some bad news. Someone poisoned our ventilation system. Everyone has now been infected and we're all going to die in eight hours. However, there is a cure. It's in one of these 10 vials that I have up here. My question is, would you like to know the truth about which one it is? Or do you want to know how I feel? Does truth matter? If we're in a burning building and all the doors are locked and you're like, we need out. Do you want my truth to be? No, man, the fire is good. Let's love the fire. Do you want me to say, well, I feel like maybe, you know, my truth is that is the way out. Now, I don't know if it's open or not, but that my truth is that. Or do you want the truth? See, in those instances, there's only one truth. And you want the truth, Right? You don't want a truth. Like, well, I feel like, you know, Gatorade could cure the disease. Okay, well, that's your feeling, bro. Like, are you with me? Like, we really want, without truth, you can't have society because you can't govern it. You can't have language because you can't communicate. That's the problem with our culture today. Um, we even have people who call themselves Christians. They're a part of what I would call, it's called progressive, progressive Christianity. They minimize the gospel. They, they, I mean, they make a mess of everything. And, and basically, they don't even know what the Bible says. Every one of I've read books that I'm like, what in the world? How did you take a Bible and get here? But the bottom line is all about feeling. And, you know, we're, we're progressing as Christians. We progressed again. You know, the teaching was for way back then. And, I mean, there's just all this crazy stuff. And, and the bottom line is everybody's, it's like we all got our truth. You got your truth. I got my truth. And what progressive Christianity does, what our culture is doing, is now we're taking, we're taking words like gender, which we used to all think we knew what it meant, and now we're giving it 70-something different meanings. Well, how, listen, you can't rule, a, you, can't, you can't be a society if you embrace relativism because language starts to break down because people say, well, that, that word, that means that for you, but that doesn't mean that for me. You, you can't have rule or law without truth. Is it the truth that murder is wrong? 
Is that your truth or is that everybody's truth? Right? And so the reality is, truth is consequential. To not have truth has incredible consequence. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Your well-being is based on truth. Right? If you have high blood pressure, is that how you feel or is that a medical truth? And do you want a doctor to say, if you have high blood pressure that's life-threatening, do you want him to say, you know what? My truth is you really don't have high blood pressure. Or my truth is if you'll eat three almonds a day, you'll probably feel better. Or do you want somebody that's got some truth that's grounded in reality to say, you know, here's the treatment plan for your condition? See, truth is for our own well-being. Is it true eating too much sugar is bad? Is it true exercise is good? I mean, there's a lot of things that have to do with our own well-being that we need truth for. So we need truth for society. We need truth. You need truth for relationships. How many like to be lied to? Would you want to be married to someone who was in an affair, but their truth was they really weren't in an affair? That wasn't my truth. Well, you were or you weren't. See, the thing is, relativism doesn't actually work at all. I'll tell you the reason, and this, Jesus said, I came into the world for truth. I'm going to tell you right now. When, when Jesus says that, by the way, well, I'll get into what he's meaning in just a minute. But, but he said, I came into the world for this truth. Now, here's the reality is, and this is one reason, and we used to all understand this in the body of Christ, but we don't anymore. At the end, of, at the end your eschatology, whatever you think the end is or what it looks like, at the end... You stand before God. And you know how you're judged? You're not judged based on your truth. Romans 2 verse 2. Look at this. Now the context, Jesus, or Paul, I'm sorry. Paul talks about a lot of sin. Everything from slander to murder to gossip and everything in the middle. He gives this list of sin. And he's talking to Jews who thought because they were Jews... They didn't have to be as righteous as people who were not Jews. Meaning, well, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. What does it matter what I do? If they're not a Christian, they're going to hell. So they're going to be judged for their sin, but I'm not going to be judged for my sin because I'm a Christian. That's essentially the context. And this is what, this is what Paul says. Now we know that God's judgment is, is against those, or we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based in truth. Here's what he's saying. Listen, I don't care if you, if you say you're a Christian or not. At the end of your life, you're going to be judged, and you're not going to be judged with relative truth based on how you feel. You're going to be judged based on God's truth. And Jesus is saying, I've come into the world on a mission of truth because whether you believe it's true or not, you'll be judged by it in the end. Are you with me? So truth is conse consequential. You know, truth is also, truth is also, an, uh, is, is also a compass. Even Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. Truth is a compass. Truth tells me if I'm getting to the right place. How do I, my life has no meaning. You understand, once you remove truth, an absolute, my life doesn't have meaning. My life doesn't have purpose. Doesn't mean I can't do some good things. Doesn't mean I can't create my own meaning. I'm just saying there's nothing, there's no eternity, there's no consequence, right? But truth is actually a guide. How many know, if you came to me and you said, Pastor Marty, I'd really like to get to Dallas today. How do I get to Dallas? And I said, you know what? Just drive south until you hit water. How many know that is not the way you get to Dallas, right? 
Why do we need truth? Truth tells me where I am, and truth tells me where I need to be. Are you with me? So truth guides me. Like, do you want to live a lie based on, do you want to live a life based on lies? Nobody, it doesn't make sense. Nobody would say, yeah, I want to build my whole life on a lie. But people do it every day. They just call it their truth. They just call it, well, that's, that's my truth. See, the reality is, and this is what Jesus says in John 18, truth is absolute. He said, I came, this is verse 37, but he said, I came to bear witness of the truth. So let's talk about what Jesus thought truth was. He uses the Greek word aletheia. Um, why that's important is just the meaning, and I'll get to the meaning of that word in just a minute. John's gospel, by the way, Jesus talks about, he uses this word. John uses this word many times in conversations with Jesus. Jesus uses this word, aletheia, from the Greek, which is the Greek word for truth. In fact, John used it 46 times. The synoptic gospels use it total, a cumulative of 10 times. Um, so John talks about it a lot. This whole issue of truth is in John a lot. And the reason is because John is showing that Jesus is the truth. See, in, in that culture, Pilate's saying, hey, whose truth are you talking about? Jesus said, I came to give witness to the truth. Well, one of the old, in Judaism, one of the Old Testament names for God, they would know God as true or truth, right? And, and we get that the attribute of God is God is trustworthy. Well, trustworthy means the root of that is true, right? He is, he is trustworthy because he's true. How many know you can't trust things that aren't true. Does that make sense, right? So the reason we trust God is because God is true. So when Jesus says, I came to bear witness of the truth, he is, remember John is always taking Jesus, all the I am statements, etc. They are pointing back to the old covenant. They're pointing back to the, to Yahweh God, if you will. And so John, here, here it is. Jesus said, I'm, I came to bear witness of the truth. What he's saying is God is true, his plan for salvation and redemption is true. And I am the proof that God is who he said and that God is doing what he said and that God's truth is truth and God is true. That's, what, that's, that's what's in the statement. And he uses this word, um, aletheia. And aletheia actually means, and, and this will make sense if you've ever taken apologetics. If you haven't, it's okay. I can totally make anything make sense to anybody. That's the only gift God gave me, okay, is explaining things, right? So in apologetics, we have the correspondence theory of truth. What does the correspondence theory of truth mean? It's the way we know truth. There's some other theories of truth, the coherence, but they don't actually work, right? The one that works every time is the correspondence theory of truth. To put it in the words of Aristotle, which I told this to Jana, and she's like, don't tell them this. It's very confusing, but I want to tell you it's confusing. And then you'll be confused, but then I'll just tell you what it means. Aristotle said it this way, to say of what is, it is not, or to say what is not, it is, that's false. But to say what is, it is, and to say what's not, is not, that is true. All right? That's what the correspondence theory actually means. Correspondence theory of truth actually just means whatever you set forth as your proposition, it's only true if it corresponds with reality. Example, this is water. Now, that... The reason I say that, if I said, I think this is water, I believe this is water, and you said, you know what, looks like water, tastes like water, you know, it's liquid, we can even test it, it's got two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, okay, it's water. Then what I put forth, what I set forth, my proposition is that essentially because this corresponds with reality, I now have truth, this is water. 
If I said this is pizza, it does not correspond with reality, so it is not truth, right? So the correspondence, the correspondence theory of truth just simply says it's got to match reality. Whatever you're setting forth has to actually match how things are. Are you with me? Well, the, the irony is the word Jesus uses from the Greek, that's exactly what the word means. When he says truth, he's saying that which corresponds with reality. So Pilate's sitting here like, what's truth? Everything's true. And Jesus is like, no, there's only one truth. And it corresponds with all of the history that we have. And it's standing. Think about this. Pilate asked, what is truth in the face of incarnate truth? And so how do we know truth? How do we know truth, everybody? Truth equals reality, right? Does that make sense? And so when we're talking about truth and where it gets muddy, if you will, in our culture is because there are subjective truth claims and there are objective truth claims and we keep muddying the water between these. Let me, very again, I, I know this is a lot, but you live in the world and you need to know what you believe and why and you need to know how the world is, okay? So I'm just gonna help you, okay? Subjective truth claims are just claims that are grounded in the subject. If I said, I believe chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert. Now, is that true? No, because you may not like chocolate chip cookies. You may believe fruitcake is the best dessert, to which I would say you are a fruitcake. <laughs> right? But the claim of what is true is based in the subject does that make sense? And so therefore, the truth can change if the subject changes. I might have a new dessert tomorrow. Jana was thinking about making this uh, molten lava cake in a crock pot. It sounded really good. So by tomorrow, I may have a new favorite dessert. And I could say crock pot molten lava cake is the best dessert in the world. Now, it's a subjective truth. It's just my truth, right? That is my truth, Right? But it, we have to understand, but it's based in the subject, meaning it's grounded in the subject, meaning I could change my mind tomorrow and I'd have a different truth. So that truth, subjective truth, this is what you need to understand, is not absolute. It doesn't work for you. You may not like chocolate, to which I would say, get saved. <laughs> Objective truth is when the truth claim is based in the object. This is water, okay? Whether I believe it's water, whether I like water, whether I think it's water, that doesn't change what it is because the claim of it is based in the object, water. Are you with me? Those objective truth claims then are absolute, right? Are you with me? I say this because while I may say things like, Chocolate chip cookies are the best. That's my truth. Well, that can be my truth, but really it's just my opinion. Because I can't prove chocolate chip cookies are the best dessert in the world. Everybody doesn't like chocolate chip cookies. The problem in our culture is we keep broadening the scope of subjective truth and making it authoritative. You don't build your life on subjective truth. There is a way that seems right to a man. Let me say it another way. This is Solomon, by the way. 
from the Proverbs. There is a way that seems true to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. That's why you don't live your life based on subjective truth. That's why you don't create your own truth. Because we've got a generation, we've got a society that thinks they're living their truth and the end is destruction. Are you with me? See, the reality is, and this is the two biggest areas where, where people are making subjective truth where there really should be absolute truth. And it's in the issue of morality and religion. It's the two biggest ones. Because most people, you say two plus two is four. Yeah, two plus two is four. Right? That's, that's just what it is. It corresponds with reality. If I have two apples and I get two more apples, I just have four apples. That's not really relative. That's not my truth. That's the truth. We all know that to be the truth. But in our culture, two of the biggest areas where we're trying to make truth relative when it is absolutely absolute is morality and religion. See, the truth is, and this is where an atheistic worldview gets you in trouble, an atheistic worldview uh, falls short to explain a lot of things. For instance, thought. If, if as It's kind of like C.S. Lewis. Um, I'll kind of paraphrase something he said, but he said, basically, if, if the thoughts in my head are just atoms bouncing around, why should I even trust it? If I'm an accident, my thoughts are accidental, why should I trust any of my thoughts? And certainly should I trust any of my feelings? You see what I'm saying? In other words, an atheist can't explain thought. They can't explain how matter somehow created the mind. Okay, but, but another thing, atheist, and by the way, an atheistic worldview, I'm not saying there are not moral atheists. There are, in fact, very moral atheists, so that's not what I'm saying. But they have no basis for morality. What I mean by that is objective morality being basically would say morality is an absolute. There are things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong. That's for everyone, right? For instance, if I said torturing babies in the parking lot's fun and we should all torture babies in the parking lot, there is not one person that's ever going to hear that statement that thinks, yeah, man, that's your truth. We all know Innately, we all know that is wrong. If I said finding an abandoned baby, we should pick it up and care for it and feed it and make sure it's taken care of, everybody in the world would be like, obviously. But see, when we don't have objective morality, we don't have a way to say that one is better than the other. Right? If I said, hey, the goal of life is to flourish, you might say, well, yeah, that's the goal of life. You don't need a God to say the goal of life is flourishing. You need a God to say that flourishing doesn't require killing six million Jews. Because Hitler and the Nazis, their truth that they believed and were willing to die for was that they needed to create a super race. And in order to do that, they had to get rid of all the Jews. And that's how they were going to flourish. And you can sit here and everybody knows that's wrong. The question is, how do you know that's wrong? Well, if it's objectively wrong, there has to be an objective moral standard or an objective moral law. And if, that, if there is an objective moral law, it has to come from an objective or external moral law giver. In other words, there wasn't a vote somewhere in history. I mean, you think about all the genocides, the Rwanda genocide. The, I mean, you think about Stalin. 
Uh, you think about uh, what was the Chinese Great Leap. I mean, all these are genocides that occurred throughout history. And we all look at it and study them like, this is terrible. How could this even happen? Right? How do we all come to the conclusion it's terrible? Something outside of us. Because there's no place in humanity where we had a vote and decided we were all going to have a conscience. There's something about when the Word of God says God has written on our heart the laws, God has given us a conscience, then what we have is a moral lawgiver who is outside of us who has set an absolute moral law, and we subscribe to it, and we know it's true whether we believe in that lawgiver or not. And an atheistic worldview cannot explain objective morality. They say everything's relative. That's your truth. Everything's relative. You can be whatever you want to be, whatever gender you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. There's nothing wrong unless it hurts somebody else or well, okay, that's fine, but where did you get that? Where did that come from? It comes from an external lawgiver. And so what we have to understand, according to Jesus, there is objective morality, right? The truth of the matter is, Paul says something to the Romans because he's dealing with this. And this is what he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, this is Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness, and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. Do you see what he just said? The reason people want relative morality is they want to, the reason they want to suppress truth is because they don't want to live righteously. Most, in fact, one of the best questions you can ask someone who maybe says they're an agnostic or an atheist, ask them this question. I've been amazed at this. I've asked people, I've said, hey, I'm not saying Christianity is true. Now I believe I can prove it's true. I'm not saying it's true. But if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And you'll be surprised most of the time they'll say no. Do you know why? Because I don't want God messing up my life. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I want to be, this has been the battle since Genesis 3 and it's the battle today. People want to be the Lord of their own life. And as long as I can justify to myself that God doesn't exist, I don't have to serve him. As long as I buy in and make that my truth, I don't have to serve him and I can live my life the way I want to live my life. The problem is at the end of that life, we're all going to be judged not by our truth, but by his truth. But that's what Paul said. They suppress the truth. Why? Because they want to live unrighteously. They, they want to live their life. And I'm not saying they want to rob banks. I'm saying they want to be in charge of their life. But can I tell you that? There's a lot of Christians who are living like Christian atheists. Because they made Jesus the Lord of their salvation, but they're still the Lord of their life. Let me just say this. Morality is objective and is absolute. We know it. But according to Jesus, what he says, I came to bear witness of the truth. The truth. Not a truth. It's kind of parallels what he says in John 14, 6. Remember that one? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Look at this. This is the words of Jesus. Remember, what, what did I say? It was, it was um, yeah, religious beliefs. 38% of Christians believe religious beliefs are a matter of preference. So 38% of evangelical Christians believe that religious beliefs are just a matter of preference or that God accepts worship from, from all varied religions. But let's look at what Jesus says, John 14, 6. I am the, it's a definite article, the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life and no one. This is an absolute statement, by the way. This is, not, this is not a subjective truth claim. Did you know that's the thing about Christianity? Christianity doesn't make subjective truth claims. It makes obje- it's an objective truth claim. You've got to decide whether it's true or false, but it's an objective truth claim. You can't make Christianity true by believing it, and you can't make Christianity untrue by not believing it. So it's an objective truth claim. And Jesus says these are objective truth claims. These are presented as absolutes. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. So we live in a world, I remember I was talking to someone and they said, well, I was raised Christian. First of all, uh, you can be raised in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. So tell me you were raised in church, does it make you a Christian? It's not, it's not genetic. Does that make sense? Are you with me? I was raised in Christian, uh, Christianity. Now this person ascribed to an alternate lifestyle. Um, I was raised in Christianity. Uh, but I now like the teachings of Buddha. I think God's cool with that because it's about peace and harmony. I'm like, you are so screwed up. Like, you are messed up. But I thought, this is indicative of our culture nowadays. Because the reality is, we tell people, oh, just live your truth. Man, if, if Islam's your truth, then, you know, if Buddhism's your truth, if Hinduism's your truth, the problem is they can't all be ways to God. It's called the law of non-contradiction. It's a law of logic. What that says is they can't all be right and all be wrong at the same time. In other words, when all of them exclude the others, they can't all be right. Okay? West can't be that way. Does that make sense? It could be that way or that way. I guess in, based on our, it actually be that way. <laughs> I had to do the math, y'all. But it can't be that way. And you have to think about it. If you're a saint in Hinduism, you're an idolater in Christianity. If you're a saint in Christianity, you committed the impardonable sin in Islam, right? Uh, Buddhists say there is no God. Hindus say there's millions of gods. Um, Islam says there's one God, Allah. Judaism says there's one God, Yahweh. Christianity says there's one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. None of those are the same thing. Can we all agree none of those are the same thing? In fact, Christianity says that through Jesus Christ is the only way um, Judaism says through God is the only way. Islam says through Allah is the only way. Buddhists say through enlightenment is the only way. And Hindus say, well, there's a lot of different things, but it still has to subscribe to our basic standards of, of you know, Hinduism, essentially, just to dumb it down. Does that make sense? So I'm just saying they can't all be true. Are you with me? They can't all be right because they all contradict one another. So when someone says, well, it doesn't matter what your truth is, it doesn't matter what your religion is, can I just say, according to Jesus, it does. Because he said there's one way, there's one truth, there's one life, and no one comes to the Father. There is no other way to God, and there is no other God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is one God. Probably the greatest thing Jesus says in this statement, and I'll get us kind of to the caboose here. But in verse 37, because this is one of the things our culture says, kind of like Pilate, what is truth? Our culture says, can you really know truth? What Jesus says is, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's kind of like what he says in John 18, or John 8, where he says, and you will know the truth. 
Here's what Jesus says. For a culture that says you can't really know truth, just choose your own truth. Here's what Jesus says. You can know the truth. You can actually have an intimate relationship with the truth. You can know the truth about you. You can know the truth about God. You can know the truth about your gender and sexuality. You can know the the truth about your meaning and your purpose. You can know the truth about your life and its value. You can know the truth about how life culminates and, and, and eternity. You can actually know all of those things. You don't have to go around in darkness wondering how it's going to all work out or just pick a truth and hope you're right. What Jesus actually tells Pilate, who rhetorically says, what is truth? Like our whole culture, Jesus actually says, you can know the truth. Not only that, he says there's a consequence for not knowing the truth, and and that is bondage. That is the wrong side of judgment. But he says, when you know the truth, it will actually make you free. We have a lot of people that think they've found freedom in living a lie when truth is the only thing that sets you free. Real truth, absolute truth, objective truth, truth that doesn't come from your thoughts, truth that doesn't come from your feelings, truth that is eternal. In fact, there are some characteristics of truth. I don't know if you thought about this, but according to Jesus, and, and I don't have time to go through each of these, but truth, number one, is absolute, meaning it, it is a, it's a constant, it's fixed, it's, it, it is what it is. As Aristotle said, if it is what it is, then it is truth, right? Corresponds. Truth is immutable, meaning truth does not change. You can change your ideas, you can change your feelings, but you can't, can't change truth. Tomorrow, two plus two is going to be four. I don't care how you feel. I don't care what school you go to. Two plus two is going to be four. So, so it's absolute, it's, it's immutable. Truth is transcultural, meaning if it's really truth, these, this is the characteristics or nature of truth if you, if you want, but it's absolute, immutable, and transcultural, meaning the truth, is the, truth, the truth is the same for everybody. Gravity works on all of us. Now, you can jump off a building and say you don't believe in it. We'll see you at the bottom. It's transcultural. And then also, the last one is truth, and this is the one we're talking about, is knowable. By the way, those are all attributes, or you'd say the nature of truth. Did you know those are all attributes of God? God is absolute. God is immutable. Right? God is transcultural. Whosoever will may come. Right? And then God is knowable. For this reason, he sent Jesus so we could know what Jesus said. Know the truth. I want to read you one more passage about truth. And this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John 3, 19, it says, And this is the judgment. Okay, so here's the judgment. Now, this is a key because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Sanhedrin. And so he was a Jew. He was a very religious Jew. And they had an eschatology that judgment was at the end of life. Jesus is now saying judgment is now. Judgment is, this is the judgment, light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the truth lest his works should be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes to light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Look what it said. Everyone who does evil stays away from the light, moves away from light. But everyone who comes to the light, think about this. They don't do good, they do truth. Because we have a lot of people that think you get to heaven by doing good. They think you get rewarded by doing good. They think their eternity is secured by the good things that they've done. Jesus said, to, to escape judgment, you don't do good, you do truth. 
He said, those that do the truth know my voice. Those that know the truth follow my voice. This is my challenge to us as believers. Do you do the truth? Do you know the truth? And are you walking in the light? That's the challenge that we have as believers. Because we say, oh man, there's absolute truth. Oh man, we can know the truth and the truth can make us free. My question is, are you walking towards the light? Are you trying to walk in darkness? Because we have a lot of Christian people who claim to be Christian. By the way, Christian doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. Christ followers is what I'm looking for. Christian has just become a secularized label on a group of people and they sell us t-shirts and music. I want to see Christ followers. I want to be a Christ follower. I don't want to think about it. We have a lot of Christians that we have progressive Christians, liberal Christians, gay Christians, LBGTQ Christians, feminist Christians. We have all types of people who are actually taking their identity and transposing it over a label of Christianity. That's not what being Christian. There's only one way to be a Christian. That's to be like Christ. That's where the word comes from. The Christians were, believers were first called Christians at Antioch, and they were called that way because they said they live like Jesus, they act like Jesus, they talk like Jesus, they must be like Jesus. They're so Christy and. That's where the word came from. They're Christians. And nowadays we have a lot of people who have taken his name, but not his truth. We have a lot of people who have taken the name of Jesus, but not his truth. And I'm saying as a church, this is my challenge for all of us. Are you walking in the light as he is in the light? Or is your truth certain sin is okay? Or is your truth certain gender issues are okay? Is your truth certain religions are okay? The compelling part today is Jesus said, if you can know truth, then number one, you can come to the light. We know the light is truth because he told us in John 3. And then you can live in the truth. He said, walk, walk in the light as he is in the light. This is John and 1 John. And Pathway, this is, this is my appeal today. These are my questions for all of us today. Are we walking in the light? Are we living in the truth? Or have we done just like the Jews in Romans chapter 1, where Paul's talking Romans 1 and 2, where we have said that our, I'm going to say it this way, our label of Christianity gives us grace to walk in darkness. Because I'm saved, so it doesn't matter what I do, because that's what the Jews are saying. We're the elect of God. We're Jews. So we're not held to the same standard as everybody else. Yeah, he's going to judge those. He's going to judge those idolaters. He's going to judge those gay people, but he's not going to judge me watching porn. And I'm saying today, I know it's a somber message. I did it this way on purpose. I'm saying God's call to all of us. Jesus called John 18's call to all of us is if we can know truth, we must pursue truth and we must live in truth. And it's got to be his truth, his truth about my life, his truth about sexuality, his truth about gender, his truth about purpose, his truth about what is right and what is wrong, his truth on how to live, his truth on how to talk, his truth on how to love. It has to be his truth on how to serve. It has to be his truth.
Amen. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. I want you to bow your head. I want you to just think for a moment. I want you to be honest with you. And these are the questions I would ask today. A lot of times I ask, you know, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? And, and that's always on the table. But here's the questions the Holy Spirit gave me. And that is, do you know the truth? Are you pursuing the truth? Are you living in truth? So when you bow your heads today, I, I just, that's the questions I have. Because if you don't know the truth, that's okay. But you can know the truth. So pursue the truth. And if you're pursuing the truth, you've you got to walk in the light as he is in the light. you got to live truth. And as if we're going to be Christ followers, not Christians, Christ followers, he said, you walk in the light as I'm in the light, and therefore you have fellowship with the Father. The only way to be a Christ follower is to walk in truth. Is to walk in truth. And so today, I, with, with your heads bowed, no one's looking around. I don't want to get really specific, but I want to have a moment to where we respond to God. And so I'm going to ask a very general question because I don't necessarily want to get up all in your business, but I want God to. And that is right here, right now, if you're, if you're in the category of, you know what, Pastor, I'm either not really pursuing truth or I'm not really walking in truth or I need to take a hard look at the truth of God around my life. If that's you, I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you. So no one's looking around and at home I want you to participate. But if that's you, I want you to lift your hand and say, Pastor, I'm just being honest. There's some areas I need to pursue some truth. I need to walk in truth. I need to look at truth. Yeah, thank you. That's fine. Let's just, hey, we're family. Listen, I had to do this in my own life. I do this in my own life. Pastor, there's some places here where I've got to pursue truth and walk in truth, and I need God's help. And I want to pray for you. And so, God, I just thank you so much for those in this room that are being honest. God, I personally believe there's a lot of people you're working on that didn't raise their hand, and that's okay. I get it. But that doesn't mean you're not at work. But God, as a church, as Christ followers, we want to follow your truth. And that's not easy. And that's challenging. And it means we have to change. It'd be easier to change our idea of truth than sometimes change ourselves. It means we have to confront sin. It means we have to confront complacency. It means we have to surrender more of our lives. But God, I just pray for those of us who who are here, and that is our heart's plea and cry, God, help us by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to pursue truth and walk in truth, which means we line our lives up with God's truth. Help us to do that. Help us to walk in the light as you're in the light. This last seven or eight days of the 21 days of prayer, Help us to line our lives up with your truth. And now, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here or watching online, if they don't have a relationship with you, if they need to be forgiven, maybe, maybe they've been walking in darkness and they know it. God, that's okay. You said if we will confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And so, God, I just pray if there are people in our church today watching online, God, who have been walking in light in, in darkness, who have, been, who have been living in sin, God, that's not the problem. The problem is if we choose to stay there. So, God, today I just pray there would be an exodus out of sin, an exodus out of bondage as people choose to walk in the light. And, Lord, today if people need to be forgiven, they need prayer, I pray they would come or they would text us at My Pathway Prayer. And, God, today we would walk in the light. We would choose we're going to walk in the light as you're in the light. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. Yeah, come on, somebody. Let's be children of the light. Be children of the light. Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app. And we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also... Uh, Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.